So we've been looking at the book of Acts, like I've just prayed. What and what happened next? What happened after Jesus was raised from the dead? We've been for a few weeks so far, and today we reach this point, Acts 4, 32 to 5.11, if you want to follow in your Bibles. I'll put it up on the screen and I'll keep bringing it back up, but if you want to have it open, it says this. Now the full number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that had that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Have you, um, have you seen the movie Troy? Have you seen it? A big, epic, dramatic picture of the famous ancient Greek story of how the Greeks finally overthrew the powerful neighbouring Trojan Empire. 
if you remember it, Brad Pitt, I think, looked particularly fine in this movie. He was well airbrushed, lovely flowing blonde locks, and he's leading the charge for the Greeks in this movie. He's the captain, their great hero Achilles. But no matter throughout this movie how hard he and the Greeks try, despite their great numbers, they can't overcome the stronghold of the city of Troy, a city which has mighty walls, which batter back the external attacks. They're just unbreakable, too well built to bring down from the outside. So eventually the Greeks, suffering heavily losses, run out of all ideas but one. Out of the wreck of old ships, they build a massive wooden horse as a gift. And they leave it there in their deserted camp and they depart for the night. And the next morning, the key moment of the film occurs. It's a kingdom critical moment for Troy that completely defines their future. The Trojans, they wake up, they go down to the beach, and they see that all of the Greeks, they've run away, they've gone, and they find a massive horse. And on the beach, before it, they stop, and they debate, and they discuss, what are we going to do with this horse? And some in the party say, listen, we should burn it right there, it's from our enemies. Burn it down. No good thing can come from this horse. But others say, no, it is a spoil of victory. It's a gift, something to be thankful to our God for. Look at it. It's a big horse. It's to be brought into the city and rejoiced in and celebrated. And they chose in this critical moment, well, their king chose, actually, to accept it at face value. That it was a simple gift. And they opened up the gate and they brought the horse into the walled city. But I'm sure, as you know the story well, that this great Trojan horse is not all that's seen on the outside. Their king made a huge mistake because hidden within the horse was the enemy's great captain, Achilles, Brad Pitt, looking fine, and his fiercest fighters. The following night, they sneak out of the horse and they burn the mighty city to the ground from the inside out, from behind their own walls as they let in the fullness of the enemy's might and wrath. The great kingdom of Troy is destroyed. It's not there anymore. There's no doubt about it. This passage that I've just read to you this morning is a hard one in the Bible, isn't it? What happens to Ananias and Sapphira is one of the most shocking and challenging passages that we face in the New Testament. It leaves us rightly unnerved, I think, cautious and afraid. With a check in our hearts, is the king of our kingdom a good one if he would do these things? Where was the grace? It's horrible what happened to these people. It feels like Old Testament judgment over New Testament. Goodness, love, grace. Why don't we just skip it over, move on, we'll write it up, we'll chalk it up as a bit of a mistake in the Bible, we'll crack on to the next good bit, shall we? But it's a deeply important passage. And to understand it rightly, we have to understand this. That this was the early church's kingdom critical moment, like when they discussed the horse on the beach. Like the story of Troy, it involves an enemy, a gift, a decision by the king of what to do with it. Do I see this as a simple harmless gift? Or is there something more sinister inside that needs to be burned up straight away? 
You see, what we're seeing here is an attempt to breach the walls of God's new outpost, the first local church, in a way that could have had the same devastating effect on it and its momentum that the horse had. My aim this morning is to explain this in a little bit more depth to you. Look, if you've been with us so far on this journey through Acts, what we've seen is what came next after Jesus' resurrection has all been about God sending his Holy Spirit and what happened to his people as they were filled with and overflowed with this greatest of gifts, of his very presence, of heaven, God, the king's very presence in them and amongst them. So in week one in the series, we saw how following Jesus coming back from the dead, rather than staying around physically, Jesus laid out to his followers that his very clear plan was to send the same power that raised him from the dead, God's very presence, his Holy Spirit, to flood, to baptize, to completely fill the lives of his people, bringing the same life-changing, transforming power into their lives that he lived and exhibited in his. The Spirit would make them so that the Spirit would make them effective witnesses, proof that he had taken away the sins of the world and been raised to life. And it was by this Spirit that his kingdom would advance. In week two, Phil Moore spoke outstandingly, if you haven't listened to it, about the day of Pentecost and how on this day, the ancient promise of the Holy Spirit falling on God's people became a reality. On this day, this festival day, when the first fruits of the harvest were celebrated and the giving of the Mosaic law and the first covenant agreement between God and his people was celebrated, God poured out his spirit of a new covenant agreement on them, on all of the 120 believers. And he spoke on how this day, when the spirit was poured out, suddenly the church came alive with a new power. Their tanks had been filled with a new fuel, if you remember that great picture he used. And new life, new wisdom, new languages they didn't know flew out of them. And overnight with Peter's, Peter's preaching, we see 3,000 people from all kinds of national backgrounds give their lives to Jesus as they were convinced and convicted by the witness of the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Then in the last two weeks with Butterson's great talks, we've seen how men like Peter and John, who had previously been wimps and cowards, deserting and denying Jesus for fear of being harmed when he was arrested, Men who previously had nothing to give in themselves, now that they are walking with and full of the Holy Spirit, start to be the living proof of Jesus and his kingdom come. Seeing great miracles by sharing the Spirit's power with others and starting to speak bravely about Jesus and all that he had done to the very people, powers and authority that had killed Jesus. Complete change in them because of the Spirit. And we saw last week that whenever fear or doubt came into them because of the task at hand, what did they do? They piled back to pray for more of the Holy Spirit to come. It is all and has been all about the Holy Spirit so far. Do you see that? And where we start today, 
we see that all of this work of the Holy Spirit, throughout all of it, God has established something truly remarkable. The very first, the very first local church community. The blueprint church community for all that would come in history and follow on from it. The very first community of his new forgiven grace and spirit people on earth. The first outpost and cultural epicenter of his kingdom come. The cell from which every other cell would multiply. And we must pause here. For my goodness, didn't this blueprint full of the church look amazing? Listen, if the word local is a dull one to you, if it sounds a bit like a local small corner shop that just puts you off because you know it's got those old sardines that have been there for years. And really, the exciting thing is those big multinationals, apples and all that jazz. You know what I'm talking about. If you or you've never been captivated by the church before, read passages like this one, Acts 4, 32 to 35 alongside Acts 2, 42 to 47, and other places like 1 Corinthians 14, 24 to 25, because they should transform that view in your mind. Because what we see here in God's perspective and God's plans is that the blueprint of the local church is where the adventure is. What do we see? Well, look here, verse 33. We see that the local church here that he was establishing was a place of great power. It was a place where the power of God's spirit was on display for those who came to have a look in. What did people see when they came into this community? Was it a great band? There's no mention of a great band. Was it a really handsome preacher? Like we have many of here. (laughs) And a well-turned-out congregation, like we definitely have. No. Was it great kids' work even? Good coffee, perfect building. No, no, no. None of these things. None of these things. It was the very Spirit of God that had filled his people so that when they met, there was power and proof to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what he had done, we're told in Acts 2.43 that such was this power that an awe rested on every soul in that place. And many wonders and signs were being done. You know, I'm so excited, actually, at the moment, because we've really seen, as Jenny steps out, what a wonderful thing. Thank you so much for leading our children and hearing from God. Wonderful. Absolutely amazing. Do you know, Phil, students have been out on the street. Thank you so much for doing that. We're seeing people prayed for, words brought to them, praying for healings. Jean, thank you for your testimony the other week that God had healed your ear. Small parts of what God had promised when his Holy Spirit was richly amongst you. Small parts first, first little glimmers of the riches of what the Holy Spirit can do. They saw it in great power. This is what the local church there saw. Equally in verse 33, we see there is great favor. We read that there was remarkable grace on all the people in this community. I mean, this was a group of people where the chips had fallen off their shoulders. The hang-ups were gone. 
They weren't governed by thoughts of what they deserved but hadn't received or injustices and cruelnesses against them. They were not vying for position or title or recognition like in so many organizations. Instead, they lived out of an understanding of the undeserved favor which they knew God had given them in Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Undeserved forgiveness, undeserved sonship, undeserved intimacy with the living God. They knew they had been in the muck and the mire and he had raised them up by sheer grace to heavenly places and being seated with him. Everyone, everyone we read in this community had a sense of the Lord's favor and leaning towards them. They knew that they stood in the favor of God. They were his beloved, his adopted. And they knew that everything that they had, whether that was the very seconds or moments of the day, the breath in their lungs, to every miracle that they saw, every pound in their pocket, was grace. God's creative conception given to them freely. That sense filled this local church community. Finally, finally, it was a community where the entire culture was of the most rich, countercultural love imaginable for one another. Because of an understanding of grace, they didn't hang on to the ownership of possessions. That wasn't a measure of success or value, and because of love, they became a community that eradicated poverty in their midst. What a statement here. 434. There was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. Every need was met in this blueprint church. Every need. Why? Because those who had been given more in God, by the grace of God, saw fit to share it. Because wherever they could, they lived costly sacrificial lives for one another. Not just one and two of these people, but all of them as a cultural norm. This church of over 3,000 people loved the poor over their own wealth. I went to this church the other day, I hadn't been for years, and it was flipping amazing. This guy who had numerous houses just got up and sold one. And it meant that five families who had never owned their own property could get a mortgage for the first time. Five people who'd never lived with the security of a home had a roof over their head for the first time. I was so blown away, I never knew Christianity would lead to that kind of love. What I'd seen was religion. You know, this blueprint church that we see here, if you take it at face value, do you know, they believed that people in poverty and need were more important than your next car, personal wealth accumulation project, our next house in the portfolio. Is this not the message and model our world needs to see right now? Is it not? I I can't think of a stronger message that needs to be put out there in the world. I'm so challenged by this, so convicted afresh by this, of what the Blueprint Church lived like. This Blueprint Church believed this and lived it an anti-self principle. They lived at a great cost. I mean, they were selling houses to the poor, we read, so they wouldn't be poor. The example here at the end of this bit of scripture is Joseph Barnabas, who loved to give courage and encouragement to others. We're told he gave a whole field and all of the proceeds freely. Now, this wouldn't just 
produced a large sum of cash. But you've got to understand in this culture that you know fields were a sign of social status and ongoing security. The way you got your food, and the more fields you have, the more successful you were in that culture. He gave up not only the large sum of cash, but he made a statement about where his heart was. Trust in you, God. My status <laughs> is in you, God. I freely give it all because I recognize how much you've freely given me. Wow. Now, they lived the model of Christ on the cross, didn't they? He freely gave everything. <laughs> so that we would have everything. It's remarkable. Ah, this is what God established in the weeks following his ascension. A local church built with the Holy Spirit at its centre. A mighty local church filled and marked by his powerful presence, incredible grace, and culture-changing love. I was not being shaken by external threats anymore. This is the blueprint of the local church. What a stronghold of his kingdom looks like via the Holy Spirit. My goodness, I feel it. I just, honestly, it just lifts me, excites me, transforms that word local so much. So then, the tone, as we know, of this passage, as I've already alluded to, changes a bit. And in fact, the, the whole of the victorious language and moving forward of the mission that we've seen so far in Acts changes slightly as we're introduced to a couple in the church who lay this gift before the apostles' feet. That is not all it seems. Which has something else, a different motivation and motivator than Barnabas and the community had had at its centre. We read it's a gift, not inspired by God, but as verse 3 tells us, that it was really motivated by the captain of the enemies of God's kingdom, Satan. And that his hand and influence was hidden inside it. That this gift, although it looked spectacular, and to be honest, I look at this gift and it's more than I've ever given. It looked spectacular. It looked kind. It looked generous on the outside. It was in fact, really... Satan's way of creeping into a new community where he couldn't get through its walls now and starting to undermine its foundations from the inside out. But what was the essence of this great danger that Satan wanted to get into his church? What, what was it? What was its root? What was the Trojan horse that brought all this risk? Was it, was it money and obedience to authority? Was it that they disobeyed Peter and the apostles? You know. That the church and church leaders here were trying to build some kind of cultish controlling commune where everyone had to give their wealth and if they didn't, they would be fiercely punished. And that God wanted to root out anyone who was unprepared to give all their wealth and earnings to the church because this would stop what he was doing and damage his mission. You can tell by my, my dramatic tone of voice, no, not at all. Look, there's no indication anywhere in the New Testament that this type of this is the type of church that God wanted to build. It was not money that started his church. 
And money was not the power behind his church. And there is no indication in this passage that the culture of giving here was because the leaders had adopted a forceful approach to giving. And if people didn't obey them, then they were in trouble. I think this is made particularly clear, if you can read it. Sorry, it's not great up here, but I'll read it to you in verse 3 and 4, where Peter sort of says, Ananias, this is madness. Why are you keeping back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it was yours, mate. It, it remains your own. You know, we didn't demand it from you. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? It was yours to do with what you liked, mate. Why is it? What, what's going on that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter here is like, what are you doing, mate? You're under no obligation to sell the field. You're welcome to give what you wanted. And as I said, they were pretty generous in what they gave. Failure to give money and disobedience to the holy apostles was not the Trojan horse here. It was not that that was concerning God in this matter. If it's not this, then what was it? I think it looks more like this, actually. It's simply that Ananias, whose name literally means one to whom God has given generously, and Sapphira, which means beauty, sapphire, had for the first time, the very first time, brought deception, dishonesty, pretend Christianity and a fakeness into the church's life and witness. A lack of authenticity into what they were doing. A lack of honestness. They were faking it to people. They were faking it to other people in the church. Trying to look more sacrificial, holy and favourable than they actually were. They were more concerned with their appearance to others than being honest. That they didn't really want to give away all their money. Peter said, look, it's all right if you hadn't wanted to give away all your money. I don't, I don't know why you pretended that you did. They didn't really want to give all, all their money away. That's clear. But they've been more concerned about making it look like, yes, I have given all my money away. Holy like Barnabas. No, rather than being honest, they just, they still wanted some financial security for themselves. Or it felt you know, unable to give for some other legitimate reason even that they, that they hadn't shared with people. They pretended to be giving it all. They painted a lie, a picture of dishonesty. They removed honesty, authenticity, genuineness from their Christian practice in this moment and became pretend Christians towards others. Good Christian thespians and actors. But there's something more important here than faking it to others, which is at the heart of this. At this moment, they were also trying to fake it through the Holy Spirit. It comes out in three different lines here. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why are you trying to fake it to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Why are you trying to lie to God, who is the person of the Holy Spirit? How is it that you've agreed in verse 9, 5, 9, to test the Spirit of the Lord? Why are you trying to get away with something with the Holy Spirit? Why are you trying to deceive the Holy Spirit? And this is the real crux of the issue, the centerpiece of it. 
This is what the enemy's Trojan horse wanted to sow into the church with this gift. Up until this moment, as we have seen, when the Holy Spirit came, the people uncynically and unwaveringly seek as best and openly and honest as they can to trust and follow the Spirit of the Lord in a childish fashion, wholeheartedly, genuinely. And as we've seen this, God gives space to build an amazing, brave, generous, grace-filled and powerfully spirit-filled community of the local church. Yet here, rather than this true and real and genuine trusting that has been the norm for the first time in this gift, there is just an outward pretending, a play-acting to trust God and his gift of the Holy Spirit. Whilst really in their hearts, Ananias and Sapphira are trying to test, they're trying to see what the line is for how much they can get away with, with not really following the person of the Spirit. And this, this heart of not really trusting, this heart of pretending, just pretending to trust outwardly because they know they should, rather than really having a deep heart that trusts in the Holy Spirit, is what the enemy wants to sow in in this moment through this gift. A people content with just pretending to trust and follow the Holy Spirit into the church. While trying to hide from each other and God that their heart of hearts, they're not really willing to do so. Not really that up for it. Because, listen, if you can get people from the inside out to just pretend with one another, pretend to God that they are following God, rather than really working out what it is to faithfully, honestly, wholeheartedly and genuinely follow the engine and power of God's church, the Holy Spirit, you get this. You don't get Batman. You get a toy. You get a pretend version of the real thing. It looks shiny and good. It may even be fun to play with. But it's no good in a fight, is it? Would you take your Lego Batman, take down the bullies to advance the kingdom? Would you take him to a war? No, you wouldn't. You'd just take one boot and it would be crushed. It would fall down. It's got a weakness to it, a silliness to it. It's no good in a fight to have a pretend version. What you really need is this. What you really need is this. You need the real thing. The genuine article. Batman, as far as I can see, and that's not a great analogy because he's not real. There is no Batman. Sorry, I'm breaking your hearts there. I, no, I know, I know, yeah. Like, Chris sometimes dresses up as Batman, but he's not the real thing. Like, that's just. It's not true. Preacher shouldn't lie, I'm going to be honest. I'm all talking about honesty, authenticity, integrity here, and I'm lying about Chris Butler in this one. That's just. But actually, from what I have seen, he is pretty good in a fight. He's got some oomph, he's got some power, he's got some genuineness. He takes down some pretty heavy-duty bad dudes. And the Holy Spirit, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit's good in a fight. The genuine article, really following the gift of God. My goodness, I've seen in my time of being a Christian, I've seen legs grow in front of me, and it's been remarkable. I've seen people come 
had a, had a friend amongst us who'd been out in, in a main spiritual environment where you've seen gangsters transformed, haven't you? Because of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what? I can't do that. The Holy Spirit can. And our King, our King, you know, seeing this, seeing what Satan is trying to do in this blueprint, seeing how he's trying to affect this early church, takes over. The giver and taker of life steps in and says, no flipping way. No way. This is not the blueprint for my local church going forward. And I want my people for all time to know this. This is so important that you know this. This is so important that I underline it when I'm laying the foundations of this church. Do you know this is a one-off event? Never happened again after this. God had sown his important lesson into history in this moment. God doesn't have the debate here that the Trojans had over whether to burn the horse or not. He simply gives Peter this incredible prophetic insight into the situation and lights up a bonfire with this gift, ending the lives instantly of those who sought to bring the gift into the walls of his new local church. It's just too precious to him. No other place in the New Testament do we see this fierceness of judgment of God. Such a rapid, stark and costly protection of his people something. That teaches us something. That teaches us how important and precious it was to God that we did not fall into this way of living. Fillmore writes about this Trojan horse moment like this. It is incredibly serious when the church starts play-acting devotion like the Pharisees and pagans. The advance of the church is firmly linked to a pure and attractive witness to the person of Jesus Christ. If Satan soils and corrupts her under the veneer of discipleship, chip, ship, not chip, it is game over for the church. Game over. Like a surgeon, though, dealing with a cancerous melanoma, God gets out his scalpel and operates fast here. What we have to understand is that for God not to have acted here, this would have been devastating for this early church. It would have been as devastating as when Adam and Eve saw under Satan's prompting to deceive God in the Garden of Eden and were cast out of his presence and the Garden of Abundance where fruit came richly and fully. And they were cast out into the barren wilderness where they had to toil and work hard and pull a, a heavy yoke to get anything from the ground to go down the route of being pretenders with each other and pretenders with the Spirit has the same effect. Because as Acts showed us, and has shown us abundantly, the presence of his spirit is the place of the gardens of abundance now. Does that make sense? So God gave the starkest warning here. Don't build on a foundation of falseness when it comes to trusting my spirit. Not now, forever. Receive and follow and treasure the gift of my presence. Walk by him. Don't lie to him, deceive him, or grieve him. Have the most open and honest and trusting relationship you can. Because he is the source of your life and the way you will.
that's what he establishes at the beginning of Acts, and that's what he's protecting in this moment. Do you know, if you see what the fruit is of him burning the Trojan horse, it's this. There was fear, in verse 11 we saw. Incredible awe in God. Do you know, in this moment, they saw afresh something that sometimes we just walk over a little bit. That God was the king, the Lord, the judge over all, and actually a little bit terrifying like a lion. He was awe-inspiring and awesome, and the final say on everything. Yes, he is the God of grace and favor, but also, let's make no mistake, he is a God to bow before, to tremble before. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord and its importance in our lives and recognizing who he is. Lots of things to be afraid of in this world. He says, don't be afraid of them first. First, be afraid of God. He's the real controller. He's the real fate holder. He's the master of everything. He's the true king. Look to him first. He sowed this deep into his community. And verse 12, I put this in because actually what we see is that through this act, the rich, authentic life of the Spirit continued. It continued. The miracles. There are these lovely points in Acts where it just says, and lots of miracles were being done. Just to show you that it kept going. There wasn't this one-off thing. Now, lots of signs and wonders and miracles kept being done. After this, after this act of protecting, kept growing. Kept growing. The church just kept being effective at, at reaching for, out for people in the Spirit and seeing them pulled up from the muck and the mire, of seeing them saved, of seeing that wonderful, authentic grace and goodness that was changing people's lives within them and without them kept rolling on. The local church was effective, powerful, dangerous. Satan's plan had failed. No, I want a landscape. What happens next? Oh, it's the same thing. I'm, the Holy Spirit happened next. Everything, this, this passage reinforces for me that everything God wants to do and keep doing in his people is driven by and comes through the Holy Spirit as faithfully as we can, pursuing, listening, following, learning what it is to live by the prompts and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But this passage warns us firmly as well, doesn't it, about what direction our Christianity shouldn't go in and our church should not take to avoid at all costs faking it, getting into these faking it things, getting into these putting on a show where really What's going on underneath is something totally different in our hearts. There's so many churches. Have you ever noticed, if you look at why so many churches fall, it's because particularly the leaders get into this. They, they present something where the reality of something is so, so different and it comes out and it comes to life. And God's mission struggles and suffers as a result of it. And people get turned off the church and, and hurt because of it. God wants an authenticity in this. And honesty. And if that means, listen, if that means, you know, being honest that, oh yeah, I'm struggling with this part of it, or I'm moving on with this part, that's part of the gig, you know. Helping each other out for help. Learning together. But just being honest. Don't fake it. Don't fake it to each other. And learn not to fake it with the Holy Spirit. Because this leads to pretend. 